Welcome to this University of Michigan Museum of Natural History podcast. On this episode, we're featuring a science cafe from November 2019 on microbes and water sustainability. To find out about future science cafes, please visit umnh.org. Good evening, everyone. I'm standing here in the middle of the room. This is the center stage here. Welcome, everyone. Um, my name's Amy Harris. I'm the director of the University of Michigan Museum of Natural History, and we are the organizers of this uh, Science Cafe series. Uh, we're delighted to have you all here tonight. Um, we've resumed the Science Cafe series after a hiatus. Uh, we started up again last month because we have a new museum, and it is all open. So as of November 10th, all of the new exhibits and experiences are open, and so I, I hope that you'll all visit the museum at your convenience. We're open seven days a week, so there's no excuse. <laughs> Thursdays, we're open late. So every other day, we're open 9 to 5, and on Thursdays, we're open till 8 p.m. We're also open the Friday after Thanksgiving and the whole weekend. So if you've got family in town, come on down. Um, we have a special event coming up on, is it Sunday, the 8th? Sunday, December 8th, when we have a scientist spotlight. So all of you like science, all of you like scientists, I hope. And on, uh, on that day, you'll be able to um, meet scientists who are um, fellows in our science communication fellows program. So they are learning to communicate their science to the public. And we have one group from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and another group from 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. So you can meet a lot of scientists and find out about a lot of current research, and it's really fun. I jokingly call it speed dating with scientists. <laughs> Although you should, don't ask them for a date, but it, you get the idea. You can have really fun conversations with them. The other, the last thing I want to, um, two more things. One is that you can still become a charter member of the new museum until December 31st. After that, you will just become a regular member. So if you want to be a charter member, this is your chance. We have brochures. Nora is right there. You can talk to Nora. She's very friendly. And uh, so that would be something really fun for you to do, to be part of the new museum. Finally, I'd like to thank Connor O'Neill's for making this space available to us. And now I'm going to hand over my mic to Melissa. And Matt, I'm going to use the yellow mic. Hello. Ah, there we are. Um, so my name's Kira Berman, and I direct the education department at uh, the Museum of Natural History. And I'm very pleased to be the one who puts together the science cafes. It's one of the best part of my jobs. Um, and this evening, um, we have a lot of special guests. Have you ever seen this many people up here? <laughs> right? Okay, so, um, so this is gonna be really fun. Um, and for those of you who may be a little unfamiliar with our format, we're gonna have some short presentations, some longer, some shorter, uh, at the beginning for the first third or so of our program. And then we're gonna break in the middle. There's some discussion questions on your tables that relate to the presentations you're about to hear. And then the last third or so of our program will be a moderated group discussion. So we'll do that for the last half hour or so. Um, we will be using microphones this evening because we are recording, right Matt? And um, for later podcast. Uh, so, uh, please use the mic uh, during group discussions. And um, during the first presentation, uh, hold your questions. The first presentations, hold your questions. You'll, there will be lots of time for questions at the end. Okay? Um, please silence your phones. And um, Nora, could you hold up that donation box? How are we doing? I know, right? So um, your donations make these programs possible, so um, please consider contributing to our donation box. Um, with that, I am super excited about this evening's program. Um, and let me tell you why. Um, I want to introduce uh, our main speaker, Melissa Duhame. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology, and she's standing right next to me. 
Um, she's a microbiologist and ecologist with very diverse interests in water-dwelling microbes. Her research and her activism bring attention to climate change, algal blooms, <laughs> coral reefs, microplastics, and many other urgent issues. Uh, in short, she's amazing, as you will soon find out. Um, she has a BA from Cornell and a PhD from the Max Planck Institute for Marine Biology in Germany, and we are exceedingly lucky to have her with us today. Please welcome Melissa Duhay. And Melissa brings with her some members of her lab team who will also present their work, and they are Rachel Cable, uh, who is doing field work in the Great Lakes and the South Pole, and she's a researcher. Um, that's kind of a diverse group of <laughs> places. Um, AJ Wing, hi AJ, who studies Lake Erie's algal bloom and is a PhD student. Okay, and uh, Eric Bastian, who will tell us about predicting virus-microbe interactions with models and why it matters, and he's a researcher. And Katie Langenfeld, who is a PhD student in engineering studying antibiotic resistance in wastewater. And so, and there are, we also have in the room, we have some ringers, so you can ask questions, right? Anya, yay. And uh, who's a master's student um, from Germany, uh, visiting to study uh, plastic in the Mediterranean. And is it Lizzie? Hi. Hi. Okay. Michelson, who's a graduate of Melissa's Microbes in the Wild course and a lab researcher. So please welcome Melissa and her whole team. <laughs> and one more tonight. Oh, I missed uh, Oh, I have it. I'll also introduce Cecilia Batterby in the back. She'll also be available for questions. She's an undergraduate that works in our lab. Woo! Woo. All right, so without further ado, I am going to go to advancing slides. Perfect, thank you. So the title of the talk, you can see, what does water health have to do with microbes? And my hope by the end of this talk is you'll look at a drop of water the Great Lakes, Huron River, and think about it in a totally different way. So what I'll do now is um, introduce a bit about microbes and give a small vignette about what I find to be one of the most important roles that they play on the planet. And then we'll hear uh, short snippets from the graduate students and researchers about the diverse topics involving microbes and water that go on in the lab. But before we get started, uh, I'm going to turn it back over to you and your table and take about 30 seconds to discuss among yourselves coming up with the name of one or two microbes that you know. Go. All right, what do we got? I heard George. That was the first one we heard. I don't know <laughs> what direction that came from. Staphylococcus. You can read very well. <laughs> E. coli, I heard. Some others? Giardia. Clostridium difficile. Is that five? Amoeba. And something. Something I've never heard of. Anabina, microcystis. Those we know very well. <laughs> All right, so so far we're 100% uh, naming pathogens. So things that are dangerous for human or other elements of environmental health. And uh, teaser, I'll say that that represents like 0. 0.00000 and a million more zeros, 1% uh, of the microbes that probably exist on the planet. And it's too bad they get a bad rap because um, we're not taking care of our microbes in our bodies and in our environment well enough. And that's another message that I hope you take home tonight. But in contrast with that lesson, what I'm about to show are a series of pathogens because they're beautiful. <laughs> so we, we just came from uh, Staphylococcus in your nose, Streptococcus in one's throat, so that would be like the strep throat. Here are more microbes in your mouth, on your teeth, 
and gums, microbes in your gut. This is an important one, actually. If you go back, you see the piece of fibrous material that they're kind of hanging over. Well, the microbes are what make us able to kind of get the nutrients out of those high fiber parts of our diet. So we wouldn't be living as we are without those microbes in our gut. Here are more microbes in stomach lining. In, in particular, I think this is uh, helico heli helicobacter pylori, which is the causative agent of stomach ulcers. And here you have in the middle E. coli. We heard of E. coli. But these yellowish kind of filaments coming out of them are viruses, viruses that had just killed this microbe. So viruses infect us, but they also infect bacteria. In fact, that interaction, viruses that infect bacteria, are one of the main topics that we study in our lab. Oh, that's good. That's coming. What's the definition of a microbe? So <clears throat> we will get there in just a moment. But easy definition are things that you can't see with your eyes. They tend to be one microbe, uh, one cell. Um, so I'm just going to give a quick refresher or uh, lesson of how this virus works. Uh, so there's a, an image. You can see a head and tail fibers. Next. And inside is a genome. So those are the genes that encode the, the virus uh, machinery. And Next. You can't see well, but that virus attaches to a cell, which is the oblong thing, injects its genome, it tells the cell to replicate it, and eventually makes new capsid heads and bodies and uh, makes its way out of the cell and out to infect new cells. So that's a very classic um, life cycle of a virus. So keep that in mind when viruses infect cells. We'll hear more about that. They die most of the time. But even that, of course, is not uh, always the case. So back to what are microbes. They're single-celled organisms that can't be seen by the naked eye. It's a very um, loose term, but is pretty applicable to all the things we study. So now we'll do a quick sequence. Go ahead, Kira. You can pass through. We're zooming in. There's a hair on the tip of a pin and a flea and a pollen grain there, and you start to see red blood cells and yeast, also the spherical one. And here you can see the green rod is a microbe, and also those yellow balls. Those are bacterial, typical bacterial cells. And there in the purple is a pretty big virus, tobacco mosaic virus. And then these little balls next to it, those are the bacterial viruses we just looked at. So that's relative size. You can take that with you as we progress through to the evening. So they're about, viruses are about 100 nanometers in size. They're also very abundant microbes around our planet. How abundant? Well, in a single drop of water, you can expect, so this would be the Great Lakes or uh, Huron River water, about a million microbes in a single drop. Viruses, there's typically, in most environments, 10 times more than that. So 10 million viruses in every drop of water. So on Earth, that brings us up to 10 to the 29 microbes on Earth, 10 to the 30 viruses, which is a crazy number. I can't relate to that. Um, but let's think about what that would mean if we line them up end to end, all the viruses, for instance, on Earth right now. How far would we get? What do you think? Quintillion. How far is that? Me meters, we'll say. 10 to the 19 meters. But what does that mean? I mean? Can you measure that? How would you measure that? Exactly. <laughs> and they may not even know. All right, so let's see how far this goes. How far would that reach? So our Earth is 
about 79,000 miles, and it's far uh, greater than the diameter of our Earth, so let's keep moving. The Milky Way, about 15,000 light years, and they would even stretch beyond the, the size of our galaxy. In fact, 700 times the size of our galaxy, the Milky Way, which is pretty crazy. So there are a lot of viruses on our planet. <laughs> By a few. Okay, go ahead. So what does this mean and what are they all doing? Well, clearly they're ruling the world by sheer number and our bodies. Um, I can, one more. So if you think of all the green things on Earth, they, on land, they're photosynthesizing. You've heard this term that's make, uh, pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere and giving us back oxygen. But the C part of that CO2 is the carbon that goes into the leaves and the, and the um, rest of the plant and tree material. And so we know plants do photosynthesis, but actually, so there's the rea reaction up top. And the plants and trees and all that greenery on Earth only do half of the photosynthesis. And the other half is done by microbes, single-celled organisms that live in the oceans. So they're really important for that planetary process, which we depend on. And they're also, we've learned now that we've begun studying microbes in and on our body, that we have the same number of microbial cells in our bodies as we do human cells. So again, by sheer number, they're ruling our bodies, or at least on par with our bodies. And they drive a number of really important cycles, chemical reactions that are important for our lives and lives of animals on the planet. So here's our globe, and now you see the, the kind of green that is growing and receding in the ocean. This is the seasonal cycles that you can see that um, those single-celled organisms that do photosynthesis, they're green, they have chlorophyll and other pigments just like trees and leaves, and so when the, when the kind of summer season is in their part of the earth, then they will bloom and do their photosynthesis. And you can see that from space. We can measure the chlorophyll in their cells. And what will now come is a kind of quick over, you can go back one, just so it's not too overwhelming. So this is again the process we talked about. So CO2, carbon dioxide up in the atmosphere and in the water are, also the CO2 dissolves into the water and then, the next slide, the whole reaction up top there, that is that process of photosynthesis. And what you have all the way on the right are the cells that take that C from CO2 and put it into their bodies. And that's another uh, process that does, uh, through which carbon dioxide is sequestered. So we talk about um, like CO2 sequestration as a way to pull um, the excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Well, this is the natural process of CO2 um, kind of sequestration, carbon sequestration. And then the cool thing is why the oceans are so important when we talk about uh, climate change is the next slide highlights one more, it would be great. This process that we call the biological carbon pump, and the carbon pump part is the cool part. So all of those cells eventually die or get eaten by things that die or poop and give off fecal matter, and that's all that carbon that originally uh, started from up in the atmosphere. So where is all this carbon going? If you were to take a flashlight and shine it somewhere deep in the ocean, this is what it would look like. It's constantly raining down these white particles that we call marine snow, which is mostly comprised of dead bodies and poop and other cells that just sink because they're heavy. So that process of 
carbon raining down on the seafloor is super important for pulling the CO2 out of the atmosphere. But the problem is, so those microbes are sequestering carbon, but at a much more slowly than the rate at which we then drill it out of the ocean and burn it and send it back to the atmosphere. And so that's one of the, the imbalances that we're dealing with right now and why studying those ocean microbes and how quickly they do that and how they do that and how all those microbe-microbe interactions um, kind of constrain how fast they can do that is a, why it's so fun to study what we do in the lab. So now I'm going to take another step back and give just an overview, which will segue into the vignettes that the lab folks will share with you. So these are the inextricable, inextricable, <laughs> sounds funny on the mic, uh, connections between our water, our microbes, and humans. And so as humans, we do have a tendency to send things into the water, nutrients, pollution, we influence the movement of organisms and we have invasive species kind of moving where they aren't supposed to be, um, global warming. And then the interaction between microbes and these aquatic environments come in the form of algal blooms. So algal blooms that um, rise up due to those nutrients we bring in wildlife pathogens and human pathogens that could come either because of invasives or because of other types of runoff or pollution. But the microbes also are able to do uh, good things. So we have learned how to kind of engineer them, but also to use their naturally occurring um, uh, capabilities so, uh, to bioremediate, get rid of chemicals and other uh, contaminants that are in water and sediment. So they're amazing little engines of uh, reactions. And we can then control in some ways uh, the kind of modulate the impact that the lakes and oceans could have on humans because it, they certainly do. But in the end, those microbes are what will help our water to be resilient in the face of change. So they are among the, you know, we, we work this out. They, so the fastest evolving organism on the planet is undoubtedly a microbe. So they, because they, they live, their lifespans are so short, they multiply so quickly, and there are so many of them that the populations of microbes just they're incredible. They can, you know, in, a, in hours evolve different capabilities if given the right um, conditions. And so, and all of this is happening all of the time, a million cells in every drop of water. So when you give them some sort of perturbation or change, they're immediately trying to figure out how to deal with that change. And pretty confident that the microbes are going to make it on this planet. They've been here for billions of years, and they will persist for billions of years. And if we have some hope in kind of uh, maintaining a livable planet for humans, the microbes will surely be our lifeline. Which is why we shouldn't kill them. <laughs> so <laughs> there's you know, certainly um, if what we think of microbes as pathogens, then we, we think we need to, to kill them to protect ourselves. So I just urge you to think twice when you grab the antibiotic-containing soap from the grocery store. Um, though we also know that microbes are able to eat that antibiotic as a source of carbon, which is kind of cool. Um, it, so it doesn't work anyway, so don't grab it. Um, and think twice when, uh, you, well, I'm not going to give you medical advice, but <laughs> when you resort to antibiotics, especially when you think you might be dealing with a virus, it just doesn't make sense. So we need to together be uh, better stewards of the microbial world is the, the lesson of this section. Now I'll pass you on to Rachel Cable, who's uh, 
a researcher in our lab, and she's been there as long as I have been there, pretty much. So. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa. Uh, so I'm going to give you guys an idea of how we investigate this microbial world that Melissa just told us about. Um, so basically what we go do here in the lab is we go out in the field, and we'll get on a boat in Lake Erie in the the split pea soup, or we'll get on a helicopter, or get on a glacier. Um, and if we're sampling for things like plastics, we'll throw a net out there. That's in the Detroit River, uh, right by the Rouge River uh, wastewater treatment plant. And we'll sample the surface water for plastics, or if we're sampling for just the microbes in the water, we'll over here on the right, you can see Melissa is filtering water and filtering water and filtering water. So we'll filter the water to the point where we have the microbes all in filters. And what do we do with, this is a glass of water. It's, I know it's a little hard to see, but what do we do with those microbes once we have them? So we, will, we can grow them on agar plates, which we have some examples up here at the table if you guys want to come and look at them later. Um, or we can pass them around. And uh, unfortunately, what grows on those plates is only less than 1% of all the microbes you can find in the water. So what else can we do? We can pass those microbes past a laser and look at and count how many there are and see what shape and size they are so we can get morphology and counts of those microbes with flow cytometry. And then we can also extract all of the DNA out of the microbes that are in the water and sequence that DNA and dis uh, discover what is actually, what is in the water, so who is there, and potentially what those microbes are doing with the genes that they have. Back to Melissa. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so a quick segue, because um, we don't have a, a representative on this project right now. So Rachel mentioned a net collecting plastic, but we were just talking about microbes. So why are we talking about plastic? We will talk about plastic. So on the left is a picture of Lake Erie, and it looks beautiful, pristine, until you again look up close. Not so close you see microbes, but close enough that you see what you have on the right here are uh, plastics and other debris that were floating on the surface of the water when we collected. So in addition to uh, traveling through the Great Lakes, especially Lake Erie where we did a pretty high density survey to count how many pieces of plastic were through the lake to try to identify sources, we also looked being, oh right, forgot about this, this brought a, uh, an opportunity to uh, testify in the US Senate on the right is our Senator uh, Peters. And they wanted to hear there about plastics in the Great Lakes. Plastics in the ocean have been talked about for um, close to a decade now in real seriousness, though the first research articles were published in the 60s about the topic. Um, so it was very uh, exciting to see that not only it was, was there bipartisan issue in trying to figure out how to kind of resolve and shut off the sources of um, plastic pollution to the lakes, um, and they, but they were also looking forward to what are some of the solutions. And being microbiologists, we look to the environment and to the microbes for possible solutions. And so when you actually take a piece of plastic, these are plastics from the Great Lakes. We zoomed in with an electron microscope and they're teeming with life, teeming with microbial life. This is what it looks like. And in fact, there have now been dozens of microbes that have been isolated in the lab, cultured, that can use plastic as a sole uh, carbon source. And so it could be that we can look to these microbes as um, in future kind of smart plastic design or maybe creating types of uh, plastic bioreactors that could even be part of existing wastewater treatment systems. And now we'll move on to AJ. 
Thank you, Melissa. All right, my name is AJ Wing, uh, and I study these harmful algal blooms that plague Lake Erie each and every year, but it's important to know that they don't only plague Lake Erie. They now uh, have been found in all of the Great Lakes, uh, but furthermore, they've been found or identified in almost every single country across the globe. So they're not going anywhere, that's for sure. Um, and we talked about how microbes were invisible to the naked eye, but you can see that there is strength in numbers. Um, and when you can look at single cells, which is in this uh, black box here, this is a microbe known as microcystis. Uh, it is one of the toxic, can be toxic, members of this harmful algal bloom. Um, and to the right of that, there's this box, uh, which these are actually smaller than those cells, and those are viruses known to infect microcystis. So why is it that we care about microcystis? Well, for starters, it's toxic. So it has a hepatotoxin or a liver toxin that's specifically harmful to mammals, which we happen to be. And it led to a drinking water shutdown in 2014 into the city of Toledo, which I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. Um, but furthermore, what's so fascinating about this is that we still don't know what causes these things to be toxic. Uh, and on top of that, they can even shift from, uh, we can have a toxic bloom and a non-toxic bloom within the same season, and we still don't know why. So my work focuses on the viruses that infect that microcystis uh, with the hopes of perhaps seeing some kind of contribution from those viruses that maybe dictate what types of bacteria are available, maybe what toxins are produced, and then we can hopefully predict these algal blooms, their proliferation, their rise, their demise, a little bit better when we can back it up with a little bit of knowledge from the viruses that we study. Okay, so I'm the engineer in the group and I deal with wastewater. Um, as Melissa alluded to, bacteria are able to evolve so rapidly. And so, of course, with all the antibiotics that we've been using, They've developed their own means to get around them with resistance, and it's been causing quite a public health threat. So my research is looking at the impact of viruses on the spread of antibiotic resistance. So if we go to the next. So viruses have the ability to transfer genes from one bacteria to another. So as you can see here in the image, you see I have a little phage infecting a bacteria, and then it's producing more viruses, and then it's not always perfect with how those viruses replicate, so sometimes they will pick up some of their host, they'll pick up some of that host DNA that they had, and then when they go to their next host, yes, we have visual here, in addition to the PowerPoint, it'll inject that DNA from the other bacteria into the new one, and that bacteria can then acquire that DNA. Yes. So, resistance can spread this way. But we don't really know how frequently, how much, what viruses are important in this process. So um, I am using sequencing that Rachel mentioned earlier, where I'm looking at the DNA that I collect from the viruses. And I do this by, if you go to the next one, I collect wastewater from our local wastewater treatment plant. And then I concentrate and purify the viruses. And then I sequence them. And I look at all of that DNA that I get back from that. And if you go to the next one, and the next one. Then I can look at the viruses and genes that are in my sample, and I can see at what concentration they are, who they are, what resistance genes are associated with which viruses, and so hopefully be able to look at what viruses are doing to spread antibiotic resistance. Yes, and then since I'm an engineer, looking at how that <laughs> impacts our treatment processes and how that impacts how we treat wastewater so we don't spread it into the environment. All right, um, I'm Eric. So what you see on the left side of the PowerPoint is how uh, we traditionally uh, found new viruses. So essentially you take a plate of bacteria and you mix it, uh, mix it with a virus. And so each of the circles are good in plaques and it's an indication that this specific virus can affect the strain of bacteria. If you can move to the next slide. Now, when we go sample water uh, in environments, we want to capture the entire uh, community. And so what we get at the end of the day is DNA sequences, or like genomes. 
The issue with this process is that we lose a very critical information about any viruses, which is which viruses infect which bacteria. This is what I'm trying to represent on the right. And so now the question is, can I just use genome sequences and be able to resolve uh, those interactions just using the sequences? And so what I do is I use the sequences and I look uh, at trying to find features. Maybe they're very similar in, uh, in composition. Maybe I can find stretch of DNA that's shared between a viral sequence and a bacterial sequence. And then I look at it and try to say, okay, can I figure out these interactions? Now, I'm not smart enough to be able to do it. It's too much information to take at once, but my laptop is. And so what I do is I create a machine learning model that is able to look at all the data and uh, figure out which one can affect which. And so hopefully with that data, we can finally start to understand the uh, impacts the viruses can have on the bacteria, and therefore we can have an idea of what's, what's going on uh, in that specific environment. Right? I think that's pretty much it. There was... One more slide. Yeah, that's all right. Oh, right, it's not connected to the internet. I think the next slide was just like a summary of my life. <laughs> you know, not that that's important, just so it was a little less of an abrupt uh, transition. Okay. Well, thank you very much for the wonderful presentation. So that was a lot. Um, and so we're going to take a moment to sort of digest that. There's some questions on your table. These guys will spread out around the room. I, there's almost enough of you to have one at every table. So if you, if you can just spread out and try to answer questions, and then we'll come back together in a little bit for a, gr a, large, a large group discussion. So uh, this is a great time uh, to visit with the wait staff and uh, make sure you refill your glasses. We'll see you in a bit. Your conversations are awesome, and I hate to interrupt them, but I'm going to bring us all back together, or try to. Awesome. Okay. So um, it's so great to have so many people who are experts here that we could have uh, one at almost every table. So I hope you got to ask and uh, learn more about the different kinds of research that go on in Melissa's wonderful lab. Um, so this part is where we have a large group discussion, and I will moderate, and um, these guys will share the other mic, so between you all. Um, and um, so a couple of uh, quick ground rules. Um, we are recording this for later uh, podcast. I will moderate and I will let you know when you have the floor and when you do not. Um, I'll pass this cordless mic. Um, please use it to enable those with hearing impairments to hear and also because otherwise we will record silence and that will be boring. Um, <laughs> um, please look at me to be recognized if you would like to speak even though I am not a microbiologist. I do have the microphone. Um, Please limit your questions or comments to about 30 seconds to a minute so that many people can participate and I may interrupt you if you go on forever. Um, likewise, we'll give, I'll give preference to those who haven't spoken yet just so that we hear lots of different voices and I hope it can be uh, a little bit more like a group discussion or group conversation rather than just a question and answer, although you're welcome to ask questions of the speakers. Um, but I'm also interested in your experiences with things that relate to this issue. Um, so with this in mind, please feel free, uh, and this goes for all of you as well, to uh, address comments as well as questions to the whole group and ask other participants uh, about their own experiences. Um, oh, one last thing. Um, we like to foster open discussion and honest debate, even when we address topics about which we might disagree. So please be nice to each other or else. If you forget to turn off your cell phone and it rings during this portion of the program, I encourage you to check your local water supply. Actually, I encourage you to check your local water supply regardless. But either way, please silence your phone. Okay, everybody got it? Would anybody like to start us off?
Thanks. I worked on the Great Lakes my whole uh, career in water quality and fisheries. I'm very intrigued by the uh, microcystis question. I see the proper person has got the mic <laughs> to answer. I, I, think, I think it's worth trying, and it, we need to do it in the laboratory first in a controlled, uh, to see if there's some negative ramifications. But microcystis is, a, is in perturbed systems, and it's not being eaten by water fleas. Zebra mussels spit it out. So I, I think the lakes can do without it. And it's worth trying in a controlled uh, laboratory situation, kind of parallel to what Cornell University did, finding a beetle from Europe that ate nothing else but purple loosestrife. And now it's being put in wetlands here, and it's doing a wonderful job of controlling purple loosestrife. Okay, interesting. Any other, any other opinions before I give my take? Without any uh, background in the science, I would assume that if you wiped out any microbe completely, you'd have unintended consequences somewhere down the road, that you'd need to con control that somehow, that there's some benefit to microcystis that we don't know yet, maybe. Okay, all right, anybody else? Yeah, so I guess I'll give my two cents and anybody else over here that's thought about it for quite a while can pitch in too. Um, while I do think it, it, on some level it could make sense, closer, like this, does that sound better? All right. On some level it could make sense to find a virus that could infect microcystis, but yeah, microcystis like this, colony forming, like so, um, these things had the propensity to evolve so quickly in the environment. And I think that if we were to find just one virus that, yes, it would be able to infect microcystis perhaps, but then microcystis defense against that virus um, would allow it to avoid infection in the future. And along with our friend over here, who uh, mentioned that there could be unintended consequences, I think I would side with you in that respect because the truth of the matter is it's never just one thing in ecology. And we have to look at it from multiple fronts. And I think that if we had the killing off of microcystis, even though I doubt that it would happen because even within the lake there are multiple types of microcystis, uh, I think we could see a trickle-down effect uh, that would have impacts for the whole ecological system. So I'd be willing to uh, talk with anybody else on that if they have any more opinions to follow up. So what would you do? So one thing that I didn't mention uh, that I think that we can do a much better job of is for a long time we have known what causes these harmful algal blooms and that is uh, excess amounts of nitrogen and phosphorus and increased global temperatures. Uh, particularly those chemicals are coming from agricultural runoff. So we need to do a better job of seeking alternatives uh, to mitigate the impacts that they can have on the formation of those blooms. Um, I can see it from both sides. I can see how those growing crops would want to use those fertilizers to make a living. But at the same time, I think that there can be cost-effective alternatives to avoid having to do something like that. Uh, did I, someone say they're going to the Antarctic to do some study? Uh, and, and the old bacteria in all the ice and everything, is that a problem? I get <laughs> um, so we did sample around Antarctica, completely a circumpolar navigation of the water and the viruses in that water um, to see if they participate in that carbon pump that Melissa talked about, whether or not they can uh, basically kill off all of those algae that are growing at the surface before they sink. and. Um, that way that the carbon doesn't actually get deposited at the bottom of the ocean. It could be re-released at the surface and reused by other bacteria, other organi organisms. Um, 
We also did a little bit of sampling of what could possibly be transported from the ocean onto the glaciers or onto the ice. Um, and that was the sampling that you saw me doing up there on the, um, on the screen. Uh, we, that was kind of something that was a fun thing to sample and look at. And we don't really have much results from that to see like what the actual transportation might have been that the, and maybe whether or not those, uh, the glaciers could be like a storage component <laughs> for those different organisms and viruses that would later go back into the ocean. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> was, was there more to that question? Do you know? No? Okay. <laughs> I have to add this fun fact about the Southern Ocean. Why we went there? So we were studying that process of carbon sequestration from the atmosphere. And we know that the Southern Ocean is super important for that process on the planet. It sequesters 40% of the anthropogenic CO2 that we put to the atmosphere. So I just want to put a plug for how important this ecosystem is for us up here also. Oh, right. Really quickly, why does it sequester so much carbon, Melissa? Uh, so we think it, it has to do with the um, physical properties of that part of the ocean. So on the one hand, it's super productive. There are a lot of nutrients there, and so things grow there really well. Uh, but it's also cold. And we were talking at our table about kind of dual metabolism. So you have things making, uh, pulling carbon from the atmosphere, putting it into their bodies, pooping and dying. Hopefully that stuff sinks really fast. But if it doesn't sink fast, other things eat it. They eat the carbon and they give off CO2 just like we do. But when it's really cold, they do that a lot more slowly. And so we think that's part of, uh, part of why it's such a hot spot for the carbon sequestration. I want to go back to the um, microcystis uh, discussion there. Um, the mere fact that there is uh, all these nutrients flowing into Lake Erie, doesn't that imply that the farms are implicitly using more nutrients than they actually can use. Um, and then a follow-up question, which is so, sort of similar. Um, we've got a lot of uh, problems with um, pharmaceuticals flowing into the water system. And I think, in my mind anyway, that is the same sort of uh, thing where it indicates that we are using too much in the way of these pharmaceuticals, as well as the nutrients the farms are using. Um, can anyone comment on that? I can start with the microcystis uh, nutrient one. But now I forget it. <laughs> oh, too much. Yeah, so we know one, one cause for why there's so much runoff has to do with historically has to do with when the fertilizer was applied. And often it's applied when the ground is still frozen. And so that was contributing to the kind of overload and of the runoff. So when, then when the ground does freeze, it's not absorbed by the, the soil. It doesn't have the opportunity to, and it runs off. And so one kind of, of the first ideas for implementing some policy was to kind of control when the fertilizer could be applied as a hope that that would improve that runoff situation. Other ideas f include um, kind of uh, creating some green infrastructure, some sedges that could absorb those nutrients at areas where runoff is um, kind of concentrated. So there are some other opportunities to try to uh, kind of prevent the nutrients. But I mean, at the end of the day, your comment is accurate that the application of those fertilizers is is the reason that there are blooms. For the lake or the crops? Are, are fewer nutrients useful? I can't speak to that. You could use different technologies than fertilizer in order to, sorry, you could use different technologies. Um, so we know that let's, 
legumes, for example, they put nitrogen back into the soil. So through crop rotations, that's how some farmers are already alleviating the amount of fertilizer that they put on the soil, but there's other technologies out there than just applying fertilizers in the traditional sense that could be implemented to reduce the amount of fertilizer that is applied. I think the second part was about pharmaceuticals. Right, so this is, yeah, so this is a big area of interest in environmental engineering. Um, but from my knowledge, the dosage that uh, humans are given for pharmaceuticals is because the human body can't take up all of the pharmaceuticals that you give to it. It's not a 100% efficient process. So in order for us to get the critical amount of whatever medicine it is that we need, they have to give us that dose, which means that there's always going to be some that's excreted in the urine. So that's just our own faults. We're not a perfect process. I was going to say something along those lines. My guess is that's the same case with the nutrient application, the uh, fertilizer application, that it's not an efficient process. And so they're trying to uh, get their crops and soil to take up as much as they can, but just like the pharmaceuticals running through our body, it's inefficient. I, I'm not a farmer, it turns out, of that scale, <laughs> but that would be my guess. I'd like to note that uh, Melissa is a farmer. <laughs> um, and both points are really relevant. We try to, through our capitalistic society, try to maximize output, both through the amount of chemicals we put through our singular bodies to kill all of the bacteria that are in us, Right, thanks for taking a picture for me, Melissa. Send that to my girlfriend, appreciate that. We're, friend, we're friends. Um, yeah, we're friends only. We're friends only. Um, but I, I wanted to touch back, back to nutrient loading. Um, I work for the Watershed Council locally. Uh, it is also really important to think about how nutrient loading is based on erosion of the surface of the land. Um, In-stream erosion, farm erosion, construction erosion, releases a ton of nutrients into local streams and therefore into the Great Lakes and the oceans. And that carries way, way more nutrients than we apply to the land. And that's based on related and very important use of land. Impervious surfaces create erosion. Erosion happens from construction sites and that releases nutrients, um, which play into everything we've talked about and heard about tonight. I just pulled this up as a visual. You can see this is April after the thaw. I'll go back one slide because I love this sequence. There's frozen Lake Erie and there's our thaw and you see all the sediment to the west there. That's the mouth of the Maumee River. And so this is where the nutrients are loading into the lake. And then as the season progresses, and importantly, the temperature increases with the season. There's the green of the microcystis bloom popping up. This was the bloom, the day of the um, Toledo water shutoff. But then a month later, at the end of September, there was a second bloom. And this bloom wasn't toxic. And we, we don't know the answer as to why that is. I didn't think I'd be able to ask a question, but what, what can we do to prevent those types of erosion that you were speaking about? Is there anything that we can do? Is there anything that should be implemented to reduce that? you have any kind of insight on that? Um, I, mean, I mean, yeah, so the, my, my take on it is we are centralizing stormwater, centralizing rain runoff, and the centralization creates problems, and so, you know, you go down to the Maumee and you see ditching that creates enormous problems. Um, but every single one of us that is a landowner or has some jurisdiction over land ownership, you put in a rain garden. Every single downspout, every single, like every corner of every single parking lot needs a rain garden. Thank you, Jason. Any other? Yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, 
So the, the people at Argus Farm Stop nearby are talking about possibly hosting a community discussion about uh, packaging, food packaging, and uh, maybe to influence the local food artisans to, to guide them to maybe pick some different plastics or something else altogether. So as far as like what would be best to not have uh, the worst kind of microplastics uh, in our bodies or in the waterways, do you have any suggestions for what we should do? I don't know how to answer this without sounding coy, but uh, don't use them. <laughs> it's like the, the most straightforward response. So most of the plastic that we find in the environment is uh, like single-use post-consumer plastic. I'm not an advocate for a plastic-free society. It actually brings a lot of other benefits. Um, at this point, a lot of us have them in our bodies and in, in the other kind of appliances and equipment we use to stay safe and healthy. Uh, but I think we do need to get more clever about how we design plastic. And if we're not going to become uh, kind of free of single-use plastic, then think of, uh, kind of develop the new technologies needed to keep the life cycle of plastic going. What I mean by that is right now we're limited in how many times we can uh, recycle things, if it even gets recycled, which is another big problem. There aren't many incentives for recycling, so recycled material, the, uh, the market for it's so volatile that it's hard for municipalities to invest in uh, the infrastructure needed to do something, collect plastic and send it somewhere, so that's, that's one problem. Um, but the kind of technological chemical problem, talking with folks at Dow who think about this a lot because they're producing most of the single-use plastic that we're using, is they don't yet have the chemical solution for kind of the continual constant recycling of plastic. Um, they're working and trying to figure this out. In fact, they're scrambling to figure this out because some of their biggest um, clients like Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola and Johnson Johnson have committed to either all their plastic being post-consumer or able to be recycled in like five or six years, something really, really short period of time. What I think is awesome about that, it's, that's almost entirely uh, kind of driven by public, which, you know, we have some power, it's pretty cool. And so now they're trying to figure it out. And they you know, come to Michigan, and they meet with the chemical engineers. And they're like, what can we do? We need to figure this out. And this is why I put the kind of uh, intriguing idea up about microbes. It's one solution that I find kind of more tangible rather than a, a microbe that's going to dissolve all the plastic in the, in the ocean. In fact, there's a sci-fi novel I bought for like 75 cents off of Amazon about some like freaky plastic eating microbe. Because imagine if it were released, well, like a lot of our in infrastructure would be gone. Um, but microbes may have enzymes that, you know, they've been evolving for billions of years and they may have already the solution for that chemical uh, step that's needed, we call depolymerization. So it's the process of uh, turning plastic into smaller parts. So maybe they don't totally transform it, um, but they could help uh, in our design of new enzymes for that really important process. And so I think that's a place where microbes do have a role, and we are hoping to uh, contribute to that. That doesn't help Argus Farm stop yet, but but uh, I go there like every day. Uh, I can support them that way. More thoughts or questions, Amy? You talked um, about a lot of pathogens, a lot of bad microbes, and you did mention that we can avoid using antimicrobial soaps and, and reduce or limit our use of antibiotics. But are there any other things that we can do to support good microbes in our daily lives or as societies? 
Anyone want to tackle this? Or have some ideas at the tip of their Are you thinking more human or human health or environmental health or anything? Um, I wasn't thinking of anything particularly, mm -hmm. just wanting to emphasize that there are good yeah. microbes and that we could be more intentional in trying to support the good ones. Yeah, so, it's, so definitely good microbes. And microbes do a lot of important tasks for us that we have kind of figured out. They're part of our water Beer. infrastructure, right. wastewater infrastructure, Beer, yes, food microbiology, um, the good ones. And usually the good ones win. I mean, yeah, right? Like kombucha, you can drink it. It's not normally taken over by other things. Um, and so when you talk about the good things, I think probiotics, though I think of the ones that we know work. <laughs> and the problem with pro probiotics is that they're often not yet uh, rooted in um, kind of evidence-based benefits, though some are. So now that we've begun looking at the microbes that, for instance, colonize infant guts, we identified a really important microbe that um, helps to decrease incidence of autoimmune disorders. And adults can also take it. <laughs> and it does seem to help with um, kind of irritable bowel issues. So that is one I would say is an evidence-based probiotic. Um, in so in environmental health, I'd say that's actually a, an emerging research area. So right now we're studying the microbes in our body. People are studying microbes in the environment. People are studying microbes in wastewater and drinking water infrastructure. But now we're beginning to think about how all of those units are connected because at the end of the day, it is just one continuum of water that microbes are moving through. Um, and that's, I think, just a relatively new concept and perspective that we need to jump into to decide if and how we might engineer those processes as they move through. All right. That came right from an NSF proposal. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Any other questions for any of these folks and their projects on antibiotic resistance and climate change and, uh, wow, there's a lot of algae blooms. Yeah. I know we're all technologists here, and so am I. Um, but I have a question about um, how human beings think they can manage life. And I don't know if you're a technologist, and I don't know, you probably have had uh, people that present to you and talk to you about, I mean, can we really do this? Can, we, can humans beings manage the problems that we've created on the planet? I, I just don't, I don't think that, I, I'm not confident that engineering z um, viruses to eat plastic is the solution to our problem, or engineering whatever it is that humans think they can control the environment, control the planet, put stuff in the atmosphere for carbon, for climate change, put, put uh, materials in the atmosphere that keep the sun from causing greenhouse effects. It doesn't make sense to me that humans believe they can control life. That's my problem. Do you think we believe we can control our own behavior? Yes. <laughs> yes. That's generally also my personal <laughs> take on most of those issues, that it needs to start with us, um, the plastic, the climate change. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyone else in the crowd want to respond to that, though? I like this question. I guess mine's more of a counterpoint. Can microbes be used to help with our current local pollution problems with dioxane and and uh, PFAS, can we, can we use them for good? <laughs> I, lo I really love that question. I really love that question. That's um, like my big driving question from this point forward, basically. And I've done quite a bit of research, background research into it, and there's um, PFAS um, as molecules um, highly fluorinated molecules 
really have been, um, no one's found anything that can biodegrade them very much, basically. They're just such a man-made molecule that nothing exists currently. They found, <laughs> there's a couple of microbes that were found in like the soils of New Jersey that have been very historically contaminated that they've cultivated and stuff like that. But again, are we, do we want to engineer these microbes and release them into our environment? Um, I, looking at the Huron River as it is, is something that is very interesting to me to see not just the effect of the PFAS, like can it be broken down, but what is the effect on the community that's already there, that is, seems to be functioning well, Does, is there an effect there? Uh, as well as 1,4-dioxane um, aquifers are known to have very ancient lineages of microbes that do a lot of like anaerobic um, oxidation and they use uh, minerals and metals that other microbes can't use because they're kind of stuck in this underground, cold, um, lightless environment. Um, and the effect that 1,4-dioxane might be having on these really ancient microbes or if they are, have some genes that give them the capability to actually manipulate this, uh, this I mean, clearly it's not happening at a really high rate because we know <laughs> it's still there and it's spreading, right? Um, or like what are the effects of how we're remediating, we're figuring out how to remediate the 1,4-dioxane. How does that affect these communities that are already there? Um, that's something that I definitely wonder a lot about and I've looked into and there's not much, there's, um, people are trying to cultivate bacteria that will do the, like bioremediate, biodegrade, both of these. Um, PFAS, I guess, is a, a large group of molecules and 1,4-dioxane, but not much has come out yet about it. But we look forward to hearing about your research. Yeah. <laughs> so I've done a lot of PFAS sampling. I work at the Ypsilanti Water Treatment Plant, and it does seem that as far as PFAS goes, um, finding out which point sources really is what, at least where I work at, that's what they're doing. Um, Thank you. There's a lot of different expertise in the room. Um, at this point, I want to make sure that we thank all of the folks who came out, including you guys, uh, who made this cafe happen. Um, uh, so this has been great. And um, I, I don't know, Amy, I think this was a little bit like speed dating, too. But. Um, <laughs> Uh, anyhow, uh, I want to let you know that I believe January 22nd is the next Science Cafe. It will be on a topic related to genetics and health, uh, and I'm still uh, working out the details on that one. Um, so we do take December off because we know you all have holiday parties and stuff to attend. Uh, but we will be back in January, and we will have a whole slate of Science Cafes planned January, February, March, and April. Uh, so we will be happy to welcome you back. Um, on that note, um, the theme semester uh, for uh, February, March, and April is the Great Lakes at the University of Michigan. Um, and I am looking for your ideas on science cafes about the Great Lakes. So if you can take a few minutes and fill out those little orange forms with the little yellow pencils um, and tell me how you liked your uh, event this evening and what your ideas are for the future, that will uh, give me some uh, creative fuel. Um, and then once again, um, Amy, can you hold up that donation box? Okay, guys. Help us out, please. We can't do this without you. Um, and thank you so much, Melissa, and everybody who came out. You guys are awesome. Thanks. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you.